0: Thank you. Thank you very much. You're happy. It's kind of hot, but well done for sticking around. Um, If you want to scooch towards the front, so when we get questions, we can do that. That'd be great. Just a heads up on timing. I know a couple of times in in the last couple of days, we've gone through until half past and then carried on. We're not going to do that today, so we're going to stop at bang on 12.30, and any questions that are left then, I'm afraid we'll just have to shelve. So I hope that's okay, but it'll mean we all get lunch and we are here to talk about, what about my freedom? As an objection to Christianity, what about my freedom? And I'm assuming that that question means something like, if Christianity means following Jesus and obeying him, doesn't that mean that my freedom is destroyed? And isn't that a massive problem for my friends, if not also for me? Right? If I got to follow Jesus and do what he says, doesn't that destroy my freedom? And if so, that's a huge problem, isn't it? Or perhaps more bluntly, if I become a Christian, does that mean I can't do whatever I want? And my answer is yes. Being a Christian means you cannot do whatever you want. And no, that doesn't destroy your freedom at all. In fact, it makes you freer than you ever thought you could be. Yes, being a Christian means you don't get to do whatever you want. No, that doesn't destroy your freedom, it actually makes you freer than you ever thought you could be. I wonder if you could turn with me to John chapter 8, verse 31, we're going to read six verses from John 8. I assume if you are in this seminar at all, you are interested in what the Bible has to say, whether you believe it yet or not. And so we're going to look at John chapter 8, just six verses, this is Jesus in debate with the Judean leaders, or the Jews, according to how you translate that word, it's but the leaders in Jerusalem, and Jesus is debating them, and what we're going to see is that there are two very different concepts of freedom at work in this little discussion. And I want to show you why Jesus' vision of freedom is very different from the one that the Ju- Judeans have, and probably, than the one that you have, or at least that our culture generally has. John eight thirty one. So Jesus said to the Judeans who had believed in him, if you abide in my word you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave doesn't remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. It's a very well-known and I think a very beautiful passage. And there's a lot of things we could say about it. But for now, what I want you to notice is simply this that the vision of freedom that Jesus has and the vision of freedom that the Judeans have is very different. The Judeans think that they are free already by virtue of being people who are not physically enslaved or being forced to do something by somebody outside themselves. So they think we're free, we're not slaves. There's no one here standing over us with a gun or a whip or a sword who is forcing us to do that which we don't want to do, so we're free. So, I don't know what on earth makes you think, Jesus of Nazareth, that you can talk to us about freedom. We're free already. And Jesus has a deeper vision of slavery and a deeper vision of freedom than they had ever thought about. He says that anybody who sins is already a slave. They're already a slave to something, even if it's not an external force like a gun, a whip, or a sword, but they are a slave to something that is diminishing their humanity and holding them captive and making them unable to choose good things. And actually, they need freeing just as much as the person who is in institutional or political slavery. So the Jews over here think that freedom and slavery are external things, and they are. Right? They're half right, because of course that's true. We know there's been a lot of people in history, there are 30 million people today, who are still in slavery in that sense. They are externally forced to do that, which they don't want to do. But Jesus is saying, that's not the only kind of slavery we need to talk about. We also need to talk about the kind of slavery and the kind of freedom that is worked inside a person when they are enslaved to the things that they want to do, but nevertheless will destroy them. And that actually render them unhappy, captive, addicted or whatever it may be to something that although they want to do it is not for their good and is not for their flourishing as a person and you need to be free from that kind of thing. So you have these two visions of freedom. They think, the Judeans think they're free because they are free to choose to do what they want and that is how most people in the 21st century think, at least in this country. Jesus thinks that you are only free, not only if you're free to choose, but if you're free to choose well. If you're free to choose to do things, that will make you flourish, that will give you life, that will cause you to grow into everything God made you to be. And if you're not free like that, you're not free at all. But if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. You are liberated in both senses and not just in the external free to choose way. You are liberated to choose well you are no longer a slave. So let's talk for a moment about addicts and astronauts. Okay? Imagine for a moment an astronaut on a spacewalk, like Sandra Bullock in Gravity. I don't know if you've seen that movie. I oh, thought it was quite good. And uh, I watched it on a plane, which is not the best place to watch that movie. Uh, it makes it a little claustrophobic and edgy. Um, but in some way, you imagine an astronaut on a spacewalk. So somebody who is, if you like, maybe still, maybe spoiler alert, just before the cord gets entangled and cut, but let's say you're on a spacewalk and you are, at that moment, completely free from any constraints or physical laws that would stop you going where you want to go. You're so free from laws, you're free from the law of gravity as well. No one is forcing you to do anything. You are absolutely free to drift in any which way, and yet... Because you are completely free, you're also completely powerless. Because you can't flourish in that environment, can you? You can't become the kind of person you want to be when you're adrift on a spacewalk. You can't push off anything and get anywhere you want to go. You can wave your arms and it does nothing at all. And so in a sense, you're completely free, but in a sense, you're actually totally unfree because you can't flourish. You can't be the kind of, you can't, you're not in community. You can't breathe. You can't outside of your suit, you are trapped inside your own free-floating chosen identity. and that, Although there might be good reasons for doing spacewalks, it's not actually a place where human beings typically go in order to flourish. I'd like the experience for like a couple of minutes, and after that I'd think, do you know what, I want to be on the ground, I want to be interacting with people who draw out of me what it means to be to be a human rather than just completely adrift, and yet there is a sense in which that person could be seen to be free. That's one vision of freedom. That's an astronaut. Think about another image. Consider an addict of some kind. In a room this size, there's going to be plenty of those. People who either are or have been addicted to something. An addict, in the Judeans' sense of the word, is free. The Judeans are saying, you're free when you're free to choose. Jesus is saying, you're free when you're free to choose well to give you life. But in the Judean sense, an addict is free, an addict is not being physically forced by an external thing to choose to do a certain thing. They can do what they like. The problem is the thing that they want to do is not causing them to flourish. It's not leading to their liberty, to their life, it's actually leading to their destruction and some of you know what that's like. It could be nobody is forcing you to inject or to take that pill or to binge or to self-harm or to be addicted to pornography or whatever it is. No one is doing that externally to you. And yet nevertheless, in Jesus's sense of the word, you are not free. You are captive to your own desires. So in Jesus's sense, that person is enslaved, even though that might look like they're free because they have become trapped by their own choices and are now not not living a life that is life as God intended. They're not living a life that is going to lead them to human flourishing and fullness and life. So freedom's all about external constraints and freedom to make choices without being coerced, then the addict and the astronaut are free as a bird. But if freedom is also about internal constraints to make choices well, then they are slaves. So what you understand freedom to be matters a great deal. So now let's think for a moment about sculptures and sprinters. Michelangelo famously said in a letter to somebody else that the sculptor arrives at his end by taking away what is superfluous. What he meant was you have a block of marble, and as a sculptor, there is inside it David or the Pieta or whatever it might be, and your job as a sculptor is to remove that which is stopping this block of marble becoming what it could be in its highest form. And it's quite a lovely line, because you imagine the sculptor is literally doing that, aren't they? The painter is adding stuff, the sculptor is taking stuff away. That's what it means to sculpt something. And so you start with this huge block of marble, and you free it from not being what it could be in its most beautiful version. And so you end up with Michelangelo's David, which was once just presumably a large rectangular piece of marble but it turns into something so beautiful as somebody else works on it to free it from all the things that are holding it back from being as beautiful as it could be. That, do you see, is quite a different vision of freedom to the addict and the astronaut. Freedom is about being liberated to become, not just to choose. It's about being free to become the most beautiful, highest, most life-filled version of yourself. And that's the kind of vision of freedom that Jesus has not the version where you just get to do whatever you want, whether the things you want to do are actually going to lead to your good or not. Now imagine a sprinter. Usain Bolt, for instance, training for the Olympics. Okay? Imagine, I don't know Usain Bolt's daily routine, but my guess is that he is far, in some ways, he is far less free to do what he wants when he's in training than I am or than you are. You get up this morning, you wake up broadly when you want, you go and do what you want with the first hour of the day. You do what you want now. You eat what you want, broadly speaking. You're actually, in a sense, very free. Usain Bolt and all athletes, all, tra- all professional sports people, limit their freedom in one sense in order to find freedom in a higher sense. Because for Usain Bolt to be free to run as fast as he wants, he is not free to eat whatever he wants or to wake up whenever he wants, or to do whatever he wants with his spare time. He has to spend a lot of time doing, I presume, weights and short sprints and many, many things and not being free to eat cake on the sofa all day. And he limits that freedom in order to be free to run the 100 metres in 9.58 seconds. And in a sense, therefore, what he's doing is he is restricting his freedom in the external sense in order to pursue his highest freedom in the other sense. And in the Judean sense of this discussion that Jesus is having, the addict and the astronaut are free and the sprinter and the sculptor are not. But in Jesus' sense, the sprinter and the sculptor are free and the addict and the astronaut are not. And I think you'll agree that the difference is pretty substantial when it comes to ask a question like, what about my freedom? Now. If you have studied, I'm I'm not going to do, I might do a clapometer here, clap if either of these, have you studied classics or philosophy, clapometer? Actually, that's more than I thought, that's great, okay. If you have studied classics or philosophy, you may be able to recognize the categories that I'm working with here. You may already see behind the thing I'm describing, the two visions of freedom that the ancients and moderns have talked about. The modernist vision of freedom, the modern vision, the vision that most people in our society have is primarily bound up with the casting off of external restraints. It's the Judean vision, it's the addict astronaut vision in a sense. What happens in the the modern story is that the history of humanity is about gradually throwing off all of those external things that tell us what to do. The church, the state, the land, the class system, family, sexual morality. We are becoming more and more free as fewer and fewer people get to tell us what to do. That's the modern vision of freedom. The poster boy for that kind of, the the one kind of society that's taken that to its extreme, if you like, is the French Revolution. And you may know, they still use it as a slogan even today. Liberté, égalité, fraternité, freedom, equality, brotherhood. And uh, it, it didn't go so well, because as everybody became incredibly free, but then wanted to be incredibly equal, they found out that their vision of freedom and their vision of equality clashed with each other, and they didn't know which one should come first, and Western people are still arguing about which should come first, and there's this famous moment where Madame Roland, who is, this is a picture of her, Madame Roland uh, is about to be executed on the guillotine, and she says, obviously in French, but she says, liberty, or freedom, what crimes are committed in your name? And then they chop her head off, as if to say, it's interesting that this freedom thing where everybody is completely liberated to do what they want has not led to human flourishing, it's actually led to a destructive terror that is tearing France apart and leads to Napoleon and all kinds of other things that we may not have time for now. And so Madame Roland effectively speaks to that sort of vision of freedom and says, we've done that, we've tried it. That vision of freedom where we're free from external constraint, but it eats itself in the end, because human beings don't do well with a kind of freedom that doesn't set them free from the deepest desires of their hearts that might not be good for them. That's the modern vision of freedom. The ancient vision of freedom, the classical vision that the people who just clapped probably know about, is that freedom is about realizing your essence and flourishing by being the kind of being that you were created to be. And that means, in ancient thinking, being virtuous and pursuing the kind of life that is free from the evil passions you have that might not be very good for you at all. An obvious example, the passion to inject yourself with heroin is not good for you. So following your desire doesn't actually help you. In fact, what you need is to be free from the desire, not just free to choose what you want. Heroin might be a very obvious example, but there are many examples of similar sins and the way that they trap us that you could probably think about very quickly where you're sitting that may afflict you. And so the idea in the ancient vision of freedom is no, you need to be free not from... I mean, and I would say, of course, I think both are true. You need true freedom is both. But the ancient vision is much more about being free to control in that sense or to have under control your impulses, your passions, your wicked choices. So over on the modern side, the Judean side, freedom is freedom to choose. On the ancient side, Jesus' side, freedom is freedom to choose well. There's a big difference. That's the kind of freedom that you find in Plato. And Aristotle and in Christian thinkers like Gregory of Nyssa and Augustine and Thomas Aquinas. That's the sort of vision that actually for a long time, the Christian tradition in North Africa and Asia and Europe worked with. So you have two different visions of freedom. If you study, anybody here study politics or political thought or political philosophy? Claps. Fewer but still good, okay? Now again, you may recognize these categories as well, but you may recognize them from a different perspective. You may have come across them through the categories of positive and negative liberty. In Isaiah Berlin or somebody like that, where you may have heard, again, the idea that, you know, Berlin wrote this essay, Two Concepts of Liberty, in which he distinguished between negative freedom, which is freedom from interference, and positive freedom, which is freedom, not freedom from, but freedom to. Become something. Freedom to self-mastery. And in politics, that's quite an important idea, that Do you understand freedom as simply freedom from, or is it also freedom to? Does anybody here read English literature? Okay? Does anybody here do media studies? Okay, great. So we've got the clapometer, I hope, is spreading, unless it's like a handful of people who study all of these subjects, and the rest of you go, yeah, I I don't do anything like that. But you might might be studying sciences, which are noble things, but they do talk about this a little bit less. If you read English literature or media studies, then you might recognize the same dynamic from yet another perspective. The two great dystopian novels and ideals of the 20th century, Brave New World and 1984. You might have read either or both. You might have heard of them. If you haven't, 1984 is a story about how people get oppressed through external constraint, if you like. The guns, the cameras, the prisons, the torture. If you've heard of Room 101, Room 101 is the chapter in 1984 where you find out what Room 101 actually is, is probably the most savage, barbaric, dark piece of writing I've ever read on anything. It's amazing writing, but it's also very, very disturbing. And it's a description of what happens when a society has total control over its citizens. And that is, if you like, a vision, again, of the the idea slavery is slavery to, and, uh, slavery, slavery to another person, and freedom is about being liberated from it, right? That's, a, that's that sort of vision. On the other hand, you may have heard of Brave New World, which is much, a very different vision, which is really that people are enslaved not to external pain, but actually to internally provided pleasures. And the whole whole society is ordered up in this bizarre way where everyone's born into you know, in test tubes, no one actually has a mother or a father. The entire, you get a little uh, drug thing called SOMA, which you take that makes you feel better at all times. And the entire place is totally vacuous. Everybody repeats the same slogans and goes around dancing around the centrifugal bumble puppy. And they go to the feelies, which are like the movies, but they make you feel things. And it's just a, a, another really weird kind of society. And the two books are sketching for us two different visions of freedom. In Orwell's version, you need to be free from... In Huxley's version, you need to be free too. And again, the differences are pretty large. If you haven't read those, have you seen the Hunger Games? Let's do clapometer for that. Have you seen the Hunger Games movie? Good, okay. So this will bring it together, and this is the last illustration I'll use, but I really want us to see the distinction. In the Hunger Games, we have the two types of problem, two types of vision as well. In Katniss's world, in the districts, right? The people in the districts are enslaved by external forces. Again, guns, barbed wire, that crazy scene where they flog, this, flog that guy. You know, those sorts of... There are physical forces that are compelling you, coercing you to do what you don't want to do. And so we're all reaching for cats. At the same time, there are these crazy, goon-like, weird people who live in the capital who are enslaved in a way but in a slave, in a completely different way to the people in the districts because what they are trapped and immersed in is this sort of completely inane sort of, you know the guys who go and say what they do is they eat all they want and then they go away, vomit, and then they come back and eat loads more because then they're just in, addicted to pleasure in a way that makes them completely uninteresting, unflourishing, not really very alive, cartoonish, clownish kinds of people. Now you might say to me, well, I'd rather be that kind of a slave than that kind of a slave. And Jesus, of course, is not saying, well, you really want to be like Katniss, don't you? Jesus is saying, no, you need to be free in this sense and in this sense. And if the sun sets you free, then you'll be free indeed. You need to be free from and you need to be free to. Because you can be trapped, and so can I, both by things outside you and by things inside you. Now, that so far is pretty, uh, pretty conceptual pretty floaty, but I wanted to illustrate it at some length so that you get the two dif- the different visions of freedom we're talking about here. But I now want to just for a moment think, what do those two visions of freedom look like in real life? Okay, So first of all, I want you to just watch a little clip, pardon the language, we decided you guys mostly probably heard these words before anyway, so we're just going to not bleep them out. Um, But a little, little clip of Russell Brand in an interview that he posted on Twitter about three weeks ago. And I just thought, that's quite a good description in some ways of some of the points we're making here. So have a quick look at this
1: the great gift of promiscuity is you get to experience all the intimacy with all of these strangers. And it seems exciting. And the type of sexuality that I've always had is more about worship than any kind of domination. I adore, I adore, you know, so it's not about like, I want to control you. So like, but like, you know, so all these wonderful experiences and encounters, but, within it this kind of ongoing seam of loneliness unignorable and also this is the thing when you get the things your culture tells you you should be doing and you experience them now you know now you know you can stop chasing the carrot because you've had a bite out of it and it's like oh a Like you know, not and it's a hard one to learn because anything that's got an orgasm at the end of it, you know, there's a degree of pleasure to be had. But it takes it takes a while to recognise what this is the emotional cost on me, the spiritual cost on other people, the fact that it's preventing me from becoming a father, from becoming a husband, from settling, from becoming rooted, from becoming actually whole, from becoming a man, from becoming connected. You know, it takes a while to spot that. I think a lot of people don't get the opportunity to break out that pattern. I would never have spotted it had I not first been a heroin addict and gone, Hold on a minute, you're doing that thing again. Same with fame and celebrity. Well, toxic well toxic exciting and brilliant and loads of lovely people in there and I still like you know I might make another film I don't know what will happen, but like it's because I'd had the template and the experiences of oh this is addiction you're expecting this thing to make you feel better now what's happening is I am as a baseline disabused of the idea that the material world will give me anything that it will ever fulfill me that I am responsible for my own connection and that my role here is to serve other people and help them in, about, my objective in life is well, what can I do to augment myself to make myself better I don't you know even you know self-improvement I agree with all of that I agree with it entirely it's a brilliant brilliant thing and it's necessary I think but like in order that I may be of service yeah. to others rather than because then I'll just look great in this armchair
0: self-improvement is about being better at what fulfills you the most which is almost always establishing community okay so you get the idea he's distinguishing between the kind of thing that we really think we want which in his case might be promiscuous sex with all kinds of people he's just been talking about orgies he's talked about heroin talks about movie making celebrity fame pretty much a lot of the things that people in our culture pursue as ways of finding happiness and then he says those things actually all operate in the same way which is they look like they're giving you something and then they enslave you to that something and this again is a biblical idea whoever worships something to that they are enslaved and that's what he's describing this is actually, you need to be freed from that. And it's interesting to me that the punchline is, I needed to be freed from that kind of slavery in order that I might, do you notice what he said? That I might serve other people. Now, I don't know what you make of Russell Brand. I don't know whether you think he's doing a great job of serving other people. That's not my, that's not my comment, really. What I want to just show you is an example of how in normal life, somebody says... I have been enslaved to this kind of thing and I realized I needed to be liberated from it even though it looked like it might deliver happiness in order to be able to serve in this kind of way. I find that quite an interesting example from a guy who has experienced more of the kinds of things that the world typically prizes than probably anybody in this room. So when you ask what about my freedom, probably part of the question is what about my freedom to do the kinds of things that might enslave me? In Jesus' language, let's make this personal for a moment. I don't want to be disrespectful here because the guy, I genuinely, I want to honour the, the fact that he is the President of the United States. But just to look at him as a man for a moment, Donald Trump is pretty much as free to choose to do what he likes as anybody in history has been. He is surrounded by masses of money. If you've been to Trump Tower in New York City, you'll have seen some of it. Not very tasteful in my view, but that's another story. He's surrounded somehow, we could ask again how, by beautiful women. He has enormous fame and celebrity. And he has the most powerful job in the world. I don't think there is anyone in history in whom those four things that the world typically prizes have come together as powerfully as they do in the life of Donald Trump. And yet, if you've ever seen a tweet by him, or ever read or heard anything he's said... Does he not seem to you to be somehow trapped by his own desires? Doesn't he? For fame, for attention, for recognition, for influence, for popularity, for people to say how wonderful he is. Doesn't he seem like that? He seems to me at times like he's walked out of the script of Brave New World or walked out of the Capitol in the Hunger Games. There is a sense in which he's completely free and there's another sense in which he's not free at all in my judgment of him as a person. And I could be wrong. He isn't, as I'm looking at him, I'm thinking, you are both a f- free in the Judean sense, and yet enslaved in Jesus' sense, and you need to be set free indeed. In contrast, I want you to watch this clip from Letitia Wright. Who's seen Black Panther? Gl- uh, Clapometer again? That even got a whoop, okay? Letitia Wright, fantastic. You may or may not know she's a believer, but she is, and this is a wonderful little clip from her talking to Eamon Holmes. There is your break. Yeah, You look fantastic on screen there. But actually there was a stage in your life you thought, you know what, this is not for me.
2: Yeah, um, I was going through a lot, a, a, a very difficult time in my life and I just needed to take a break um, from acting because I really idolised it. So I, I came off from it and I went on a journey to um, discover God and my relationship with God and I became a Christian and it really just gave me so much love and light in my, within myself and so much... Um, I felt secure and I felt um, like I didn't need validation from anyone else or from the from from getting a part, my happiness wasn't dependent on that. It was dependent on my relationship yeah, with Because
0: Connell. as an actress, you are judged
1: yes uh, you are.
0: all the time yes. by by Criticized. producers, yes. Um so, by social media. Yes. Did that help critics. that break?
1: Have you come back to acting mm. thinking, I love my work, mm-hmm. I love my job, but it doesn't define me completely. It, exactly.
2: And yeah. I'm I'm centered in who I am and I'm really grateful. I'm not perfect. Um especially in my, As a Christian, you're not perfect, you know, but you're walking every day and trying to just stay connected. And, and yeah, it's helped me a lot, so I'm really
0: grateful. That's quite cool, isn't it? Now, again, notice notice the logic there. I realised I was idolising acting and being successful and making money at it and being famous. And I realised that that was controlling me, so I took a break from it in order to discover my relationship with God and I became a Christian. And then I came back to it, and obviously now what she's done is on a bigger scale than what she'd done before, and I'm grateful to God for that. She's our sister, and it's great to cheer her on in that. But isn't it interesting that those two different kinds of characters, if you you compare your Donald Trump on one side and Letitia Wright on the other side, they have very different understandings of what we need to be free from and free to. For Trump, in a sense, you want to be free to do anything you want for Letitia Wright, if you're free to do the thing that you most want to do, that might not help you at all. You might worship it as an idol, and you actually need to be free from the desire you have in order to discover what truly fulfills you and gives you life, namely Jesus Christ. So who is more free? The person who can do anything they want, or the person who realizes that doing whatever they want might actually prevent them from flourishing. Letitia Wright, I I see a bit like the the plant that Jesus talks about later on in John's Gospel, which is cut back, that it might bear more fruit. Donald Trump, I see, is the plant that continually grows and grows and grows until it effectively collapses under its own weight and doesn't bear any fruit at all. Do you see? We we don't just need freedom from; we need freedom to. True freedom is not just about choice; it's about flourishing. It's about becoming, not just doing whatever. It's freedom to as well as freedom from and that is where Jesus comes in this is where we're going to conclude and then we'll take questions Jesus says anyone who sins Andrew Wilson you Donald Trump Letitia Wright, Russell Brand anyone who sins is a slave to sin but if the son sets you free you will be free Indeed, you will be finally free. You will be truly free. You'll be free not just from the guns and the swords or the whips or the chains or the, the prisons or the torture or whatever it might be. You'll be. F- God willing, you'll be free from that as well. But you will be free from the desires, from the addictions, from the chains inside us that hold us back from being the kinds of people we are created to be. We're like Michelangelo's sculpture. We gradually are conformed into the image of the likeness of God's son. And as you become like him, we look around and say, this is what true freedom looks like. The offer of the gospel is that God will set you free both from external and from internal enemies. He is the God who sets us free from slavery in Egypt but also sets us free from the desire to bow down to a golden calf on the other side of the Red Sea. He's the kind of God who liberates you from the tyranny of the flesh as well as the tyranny of the devil. Have you noticed this? It's in the Lord's Prayer. He is the kind of God who leads us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. He's a God who says both in and out, I want to make you finally free, fully free, free indeed. And the astonishing way in which that happens is that as we become His servants, He liberates us from every other master there is. As He becomes our master, all the other masters bow down and are put in their place. If Jesus is Lord, then nobody and nothing else is. That's why our Our initiation ritual into Christianity is a burial. That's why we baptize people. We're saying, this person doesn't have any worldly masters anymore. They're all dead. And now they're rising again to a new life of service and only one master. And that master will only ever lead them into flourishing freedom and life as God intended. There is nobody on earth as free as the person who is a servant of Jesus Christ. So... This is how one of my favorite Christian writings, so this is, I'm a, I'm a nerd, you can tell. Uh, but my, one of my favorite Christian writings, the Heidelberg Catechism, puts the point like this. They ask this first question of trying to teach German peasants the gospel in the 16th century. Their opening question is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? What's the one thing that gives you happiness in this difficult and often very short and painful human life you lead? Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. What about my freedom? How do I become free? By recognizing that I am not my own, but I belong to somebody else. I belong to my Savior, Jesus Christ. And if the Son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. We are going to take some questions. Just while you guys are processing whether or not you want to ask a question and what it even is about. I know that some of the, this stream generally there's very specific questions and themes you might feel, actually this is a bit more open ended you can ask things about other things if you want which relate to what I've said or pretty much anything else if you want I've got another 15, 20 minutes here if you like. I would just say while you're coming to the microphones if you are, I just think for some of you, I'm, I'm sure you've heard this message a bit this week, but for some of you the importance of baptism is going to be great in your life. The importance of actually publicly celebrating your death to the old masters, whatever they were, and they may be heroin, they may be porn, they may be binging, you may not say those things in public, you may, but for you burying the old you and the old masters you served and rising again to a new master who is the new king of your life is gonna be really important. If you haven't done that yet, I know many of us have. If you haven't done that yet, that is a critical step in enacting exactly what we're talking about today. Anyway, that's giving you a bit of time. For some reason, everyone's over on that side, but I presume that might, might mean that that one isn't there or working. I don't know. Anyway, yes? Um, I have a different question on the sort of topic of freedom and free will. Uh, so it's, it's like completely different. Uh, so how how can we have freedom if God is completely om- omniscient? Like if God knew yeah. from the very beginning when he created us everything that we'd ever do, mm. how can we have freedom? Like we... we can sort of feel like we have a choice in so many situations we can like we feel like we can go this way or that way but whichever way we go even if we hesitate to go towards the other way god knew we'd go that way mm. so in that sense we never really had a choice yeah you know yeah it's a great it's a yeah questions always questions like this about destiny choice but i think really what we're what we're dealing with and the reason they're hard is because we're dealing with with a framework of time that is extremely hard to get ourselves out of it's like trying to imagine what it is to exist without space we're so bound by it so the idea of imagining a free choice that God knew we would make is extremely difficult for us I don't think that means it's not true I just think that means it is mind bending for us to think about and I think in some ways the, the two most practical ways I think about it one of them is just a very common sense thing that I literally know to be honest in a way that I can't rationally defend but I know it's true that when I went into the place where we had breakfast this morning, and I looked at an array of cereal, and there was a guy there with some Cocoa Pops, and a guy there with some Weetabix, and I looked at them doing it, and I thought, I don't want to eat Weetabix, I want Cocoa Pops, amen? And as I looked at the, co- I just, I know I was free to make that choice, and it's very difficult to rationalize that in the context of, ah, but what about blah, 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 but I know I was, I just, I know that that was freedom, and had at the last minute I gone, actually, I will have the Weetabix, or do you know what, I'm going to have a curveball, let's go for some Frosties, I could have done it, and I know that in a way that I might not be able to rationally defend, but I know it, and actually I think we all do. And interestingly, the, the people who, I, the one time I've got into a debate about this, I, got, I was in a radio debate with the chairman of the National Secular Society, and I was finding myself, I was defending that we do have free choice to do that, and he was defending the idea that you don't. Because he was saying, actually, if you have no idea of God and there is nothing immaterial, then everything in you is simply a result of collisions of atoms and neurons that you can't do anything about. And therefore, even though it feels like you're free, you're actually not. And at that level, I just have a common sense appeal to make to a determinist, which is what the, the name for that, and say... I cannot rationally refute that idea, I think I can just appeal to you that, the fr- that my sense that we do have freedom to choose and your sense that we don't, my sense fits better with our lived experience than yours and I, don't, I can't prove that in maths, but I think that's true. So that's one way of looking at it. The other way though I think is just to say if you ever, um, we get this privilege if you rewatch a World Cup match. I don't know if some of us have done this if we rewatch the penalty shootout of England-Columbia. Um, sorry if you are Colombian. In fact, two people in yellow leaving now, maybe. I don't know. I'm sure you're not Colombian. But as I re-watch the penalty shootout, you're thinking, the fact that I know which way Eric is gonna shoot and which way the keeper is gonna jump could make it look like they are not free to make that decision. But I know very well that they made the decision, even under their own volition, with no agency from me at all. I know that they did, But I know that I'm now, because I'm able to re-watch it, because I've now got the privilege of a God's eye view on it, I can see the whole after it's happened. And therefore it looks to me like I already know what they're going to do. But that doesn't mean they weren't free to choose it. And that analogy, given the advent of video and stuff, may help. But even then, I think we are dealing with difficult things to understand, because if God is outside time and we're in it, imagining what it's like to be outside time is really hard. So that's why it's always been a huge question for the church.
2: So I've been having this problem recently where um, I always feel like I'll at the beginning of the day be like okay I'll do this this and this and then by the I'll always think in the middle oh I can always do it later always do it later putting it off and always thinking making choices of oh well I'll do it I'll push it back till later on but then I realise it's the end of the day and I never get it done and those choices can go towards my future maybe and I just wanted to ask some advice
0: on that, what you yeah. do in that sort of situation. Wow, okay. Let's, we, the Clapometer's been working for us today. Do we have any fellow procrastinators in the room? <laughs> yes. So um, I might as well have said, do we have any teenagers in the room or something? Yeah. Um, I, I think, I mean, obviously, there are, there are very everyday mundane versions of that, which don't matter a lot. Like, oh, I really should do this bit of work, but actually I really fancy watching this on TV. And I'll wait, and then it catches up with you and you have to write your essay in a rush. There are, as you say, though, some very serious versions of it as well. And in the end, you see, the the Christian answer, and if I go back to our ancient thinkers, I think they help us here, actually. The Christian answer is that that kind of thing is not solved as we might want it to be by making a quick life decision. That actually, the the word the ancients would use, if this helps you, is they'd use a word like virtue. They would say that actually the only way you do that is through practice habit of responding and that begins with very, very little steps. And so what the advice I'd give it in a way, and by the way, I'm speaking here as a person who's obviously been a teenager and knows exactly what you're talking about. My university life was, I loafed for three years and probably didn't make the most of being at university. But but I think the idea that you can, a little bit, to be honest, were you here this morning when Joe Mack gave, I know he was talking about sex. But were you here when Joe gave that example on the sofa about how he decided in advance what he was going to say when the football club asked him? You weren't. Okay. It was a great example if you were here for that. And effectively what he was saying is you make decisions in advance of the moment. You think this is when I am vulnerable. And so I need to make decisions in advance of those things. And I know that this situation, that person, that sometimes literally that physical space, that room, that weather, that thing being on TV at the time, that distraction being in the audio space, I mean, putting my earphones in rather than not, whatever. You get to know yourself and you start thinking, a lot of these things don't help me make choices that in the end are going to lead me to flourish, even if what they do is they draw me into doing more choices like them. And I almost become addicted to procrastinating. And some of those things are only conquered one thing at a time, but what you, the great benefit you have is that you can make decisions in advance of the temptation. And so you do what Joe did, and you say, right now, I know I'm going to be vulnerable to that this time, that moment with these people and that sort of thing. And you can make decisions ahead of time and count the wins and say, I did it. Okay, today I flunked it three times, but I did do it that time. That's a step forward from where I was. And you can do that whether the things are very minor or whether the things are very huge. And I think in sense that you, you can't take a pill. You can't have a little life hack that changes it. You actually have to habituate yourself to make decisions like that over and over. And then you'll find by the time you're five years older or whatever it is you you're doing it without even realizing and that's the that's when you realize god has done something powerful in my life i hope that helps for now yeah
2: hi um so what if someone was born again and was a christian but they suffered with like mental health would you say they're free or they're enslaved to like the mental health disorder they're going through
0: wonderful question yeah um so and this is I have a very personal interest in this. Both of my children have regressive autism. One of them's got ADHD. One of them's got epilepsy. I am, I say both of my, I've got three kids, but two of them have got a number of mental health issues, which are, I can see both them being free in Jesus' sense. And of course, with their, their medical constraints, their mental constraints are also trapped in some ways, particularly my daughter, um, who's, who's really quite, who's very disabled. Um, and... There is, and what I would say is this is why I think two visions of freedom helps us. Because I think what we might say is course, in, there is a sense in which all of us are constrained simply by mortality, right? So let's say, can I do anything I want, even if I operate with the most Donald Trumpy, Russell Brandy vision of freedom? No, I can't. I can't fly. I'd love to, but I can't. I can't suspend myself in midair. I can't live forever. There's, and in a sense, mental health and physical health both are constraints of that nature. They are constraints that stop us from doing what we would finally like to do now. But the the spiritual vision of of freedom, the freedom to become, the freedom to grow, to flourish, and so on, is absolutely there for people with any mental health condition, even though it will, of course, be applied and lived out in their life through the lens of the mental and physical health conditions that they have. So my nine-year-old boy is growing into the likeness of Jesus Christ, gloriously. But he's definitely doing it in a very autistic way. He's do- and I'm using autism because it's the example I know the best. But it would be the same if you're struggling, as actually other members of my immediate family have, with depression. It would be the same if you struggle with, something, if you struggle with schizophrenia or many things. You, are, you can grow, and we do- there are people in this room who are. And way to go. You're growing into the likeness of Christ with mental health conditions and physical health conditions, but you're doing it in a way that is shaped by the fact that we are not yet fully free and fully redeemed, as we one day will be, And therefore, we are living in fallen bodies and minds to some degree that are distorting our growth as Christians by chemicals or bones or, you know, tissue that shouldn't be where it is. One day, we will be completely liberated from all of that and we will live forever in resurrected bodies. But for now, we live in that interim time where we have to wait and sometimes grieve those realities at the same time as living and growing into the likeness of Christ in and through them. So my short answer, of all, my short version of all of that would be, yes, you can absolutely be free within and through all of those conditions, but you will express that freedom in a way that is shaped by the conditions you have until that time when you are completely delivered from them. I hope that's helpful for now. Yeah. So, obviously, um, one of the ways we can be free, but free to flourish, is by obeying God and following his commandments because they're good for us. But sometimes in that, people um, get into a situation where it becomes a resentment. Like you, f- you feel like God is less of a father, and he's telling you what to do, and you're sort of captive to his commands. In a more, and that's not true, obviously. But in a more pragmatic sense, how do you stop that? How do you deal with that? These are really great questions. Often you come to you do, I do these seminars a lot, and it's often you have. Questions which are more sort of theoretical, but the ones you're asking are very, very practical, real-world questions. I think that's brilliant. Um, So I think sometimes we go through stages, would be my my answer, my my honest answer. I think sometimes you hear, so for instance, God tells me that it is not good for me to do something that I really, really love doing. When I first hear that command, I hate it. When I first hear that command, I probably disobey it, because I'm not ready to hear it as being a good thing. The question I think you're asking is, how do I get from there to a place where I not only obey it, but actually rejoice in it and see it as for my good? And the answer is a little bit like the answer I gave to the previous girl on that side, is that sometimes you don't straight away, and you have to obey it before you come to, the de- to delight in it. Where, and there will be, uh, be a number of examples of this. You, you, you can say this with something like, you know, overeating or something. You say, actually, I love eating. I love eating that thing, even though I know it's not very good for me. Now, I'll give you a silly example, but um, so I have this thing where if I eat, for some reason, I don't know what it is, I don't know if it's got a name for it, but if I eat more than about four strawberries, I feel incredibly sick and weird. And what you will find if you ever see me eat five strawberries or more, is you'll find the only thing I find that fixed it is that is a chair sitting in front of a chair and then leaning over it so that the chair sticks in your gut like this and effectively calms it down for whatever reason. And so occasionally Rachel comes in, my wife comes in, and she sees me bent over a chair like, you ate too many strawberries, what was that? Now that's a really silly example, but there is, there's a moment where you hear, if you eat too many strawberries, it'll make you feel sick. And you go, I just want to eat them anyway. But what happens is after a while, you begin to appreciate the connect- where it takes you. You begin to see it. But you probably, before you get to that point, have to make decisions to stop doing it because God says that it's good or bad for you, even if you don't yet want to. So I'm not, in that sense, a romanticist who says, God will tell you what you should do for your good, and you wait until you feel like it's good and then do it. Because there are times when it may be too late. I didn't... I doubt there's a person in the room who said, you know what I really want to do is not have sex as a teenager. There might be some, but many of us, that's not our experience. It wasn't my experience at all. Of course I wouldn't have sex as a teenager. But that's just an obvious example of something where I had to go, do you know what? I don't yet see the wisdom of God in telling me not to do this until I'm either married or ever in this life. And at that point, I might might go, I'm going to have to trust that God knows, even though I don't want that to be true. And then what happened to me, at least, is that somewhere in my early 20s, I began celebrating that that was how God had set up the world. But I had to obey him before I got to the point of celebrating it. And I think to some degree, we all have to do that. Um, If there was a quicker fix than that, I would tell you. But I think again, a bit like the answer I gave previously, those things come in some ways through habit. And as you you live, the psalmist talks about obeying the law of God and delighting in the law of God. In my experience, sometimes you obey God before you come to delight. In, in, not in God, but in the laws that he's given and I think that's wisdom sometimes. I hope that's helpful.
2: Yeah? Do you think it's possible to be enslaved to thoughts about something that you've never experienced? Uh, For instance, I know that a lot of teenagers think about relationships and sex all the time, but um, that doesn't mean they've ever actually experienced those things. Could they still have that as an idol in their
0: life? Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely we can, in fact, my experience would be I was more enslaved to things I thought about than things I did, I think. I think, in a sense, that's what porn is, right? It's, it's, a, it's primarily dealing at the level of idea, of thought, of perception, rather than of experience. And I think that's one of the reasons why people can become so trapped in it. And many of us, many people in this room are or have been. I know that. And I think in some... So, yes, absolutely, you can. I think, in a way, the thing that, would, the thing that traps us is to go, well, I'm not actually doing it, I'm just thinking about it, I would have found that for me, the time when I was most enslaved when I was the same age as most of you was actually the 10 minutes before, as I was going to sleep. I just found my thought life, the things I thought about doing in my last 10 minutes, all, all, pretty much all to do with sex, as far as I remember, they weren't very rarely to do with anything else. The last 10 minutes of my day was my most enslaved time of the day. That's the time when I most needed the power of God to break me free. Not from what I was saying or doing, just what I was thinking. So I totally think that. And actually, again, that's where habits of thought, saying, just naming it for a start, saying, I am fighting here. I don't know what to do here. Talking to somebody else, who usually somebody older and wiser. For many of us, it won't be a parent initially, although perhaps with some of us it can be, and that's great. But it'll be somebody else, a youth pastor, a pastor, older person you trust, and saying, I'm just going to be really honest here, this is killing me and I'm enslaved to it and I need your help. Help me think things, believe things, say things, practice things, do things that are going to help me win this fight because I am enslaved to this just as surely as I would have been if I was enslaved to heroin or whatever it was. So, a great question.
2: Why can we not choose what flourishing means to us?
0: Did you say how can you not or why can you not? Why can you not? Well, I think we all do. I think this is part of the point. That I think, I think in some ways that's what Russell Brand is saying in that, in that clip. Again, I mean, he, he, and by the way, you might think what you like of him as a person. But I think there's a lot of perception in that comment. I think, I think very few people make a decision first off that they don't think will lead to their good. That's what makes you do it. Russell Brand is, he just, as I say, I didn't put the clip on, but he's just talking about orgies. And, I, and it, he's effectively saying, well, that's not something I've ever experienced or even particularly thought about. I just think they're kind of weird. But he's saying, actually, I you get into that and you think it's going to deliver, but it doesn't. So, of course, you make the decision because you think it's going to be good. That's not the issue. The issue is, are we, whether we are, to be honest, 16 or 35 or 80, are we, as opposed to God, in the best position to appraise whether or not that will lead to our flourishing? And often, you can. There's two obvious tests. One of them is you go to scripture and you say, actually at least as a a Christian, you're going to go to Scripture and say, how does God speak to this issue? But the second thing is you just look at the long-term trajectory in the lives of people who have made those things a high priority in their lives. And you would say, okay, generally speaking, I I had Peter Stringfellow died recently. I don't know if you know who that... Have you ever heard of him? Okay. He was a strip club owner in London, and I had dinner with him 15, 20 years ago. He became a very famous guy. He owned a few strip clubs in London. He claimed to have slept with well over a 1,000 women. He was that kind of guy. I met him in his 60s, and I thought... I was only 19 at the time, but I thought, you you are a very interesting example of what somebody who says, I'm going to give my whole life to sex, turns into when they're 60-something, and I don't want that. Many of us are here at a new day at all, whether we're Christians or not, because somebody has looked to us like the kind of person that we would actually quite like to be when we were their age. And actually, that's a second test sometimes. You say, I've got scripture, I am going to trust that if God is real and I'm human, His his wisdom on this will be better than mine. But even if I'm suspending judgment on that, what I can also do is look at the lives of people who have made Jesus their prize in life and the lives of people who made sex or heroin or maybe actually things which are less trivial, but people even who've made money or whatever it might be in their lives, number one, and I see where that takes you and I see where that takes you and I say, do you know what? I want that. Now, that will not on its own be enough. That's why we have Scripture and that's why we have the Revelation that God gives, but I think in the end, I look at Jesus and I see the most free, human, flourishing person that has ever been, and I say, I want that kind of life, even if it means there's a lot of things I can't do now that I might otherwise want to. That's how I would answer it. Thank you for that question. Yeah, we got um, probably time for one more on each side, and I'm really sorry because that is bad for everybody else, but I think we're then going to have to finish. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering because when you said about how. Those that are freeing the sun, the sun sets free is free indeed. I was thinking about what it meant to be really free indeed, because the word indeed is kind of the word, two words in a deed. And I was wondering if there was, or anything that you really kind of un- understood about what that really meant. Yeah, I think what Jesus is saying to them is, you're you're uh, you're kind of free, but not really. I think that I think that's the point he's making there. I think he's saying you. You are saying that you're free because you're not slaves. In the, really, for them, you've got to remember, for the, for the Judeans, for the Jews as in general, the exodus is the massive part of their story. So they're saying, we are free because we got out of slavery. And then we got out of exile. We're free people. We're in the land. What is the problem? And Jesus is saying, that's not what to, it looks like to be truly free. You are complacent in your political freedom. And it has blinded you to the lack of spiritual freedom you're living in at the moment. And in the sense that you are, you are captive to sin. So I think all he means there is to be free indeed means to be free of sin as well as to be free politically. I think that's the main point he's making at that stage. And final question.
1: Hello. Um,
2: I'm not very familiar with the Bible. Um, I only got my first a couple of months ago, so I can't recite any verses for you. But I have noticed that some of the verses are quite oppressive towards women. And I wanted to know if the Bible is suggesting that freedom for men and freedom for women are different things, and if so, why?
0: Oh, what a great, qu- that's a great question to finish with. Thank you very much for asking it. So I think, I think the best way of handling that, well, there's loads and loads of stuff we can look through and research on that, but the, in some ways, the best place to go is if you go to the very beginning and you go to the person the ministry of Jesus. So if you look at the very beginning of the Bible, and you have chapter one, and this is just such a, such an extraordinary idea in the ancient world, that Genesis one, as it's describing the whole of creation and all of the differences and separations God's bringing about, and he separate, makes men and women different as well, which is glorious, but he then, he then makes this comment, Genesis one twenty six twenty seven, 27, and just says, then God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And to you and me, that sounds kind of obvious because we are living in a culture that, Actually, over 1,500 years has been shaped by Christian thinking about human beings to some degree, and therefore to say men and women equally bear the image of God makes most of us go, obviously. But in the ancient world, that is an extremely unusual view. It's a very radical view. The Jewish view in the context of the world of the time, both in pagan empires and the Greek world and Greco-Roman world, was very radical on that. Aristotle believed that a woman was a... Aristotle was the brightest guy for the next 1,000 years. He believed that a woman was a mutilated male. Basically, something's gone wrong in utero, and so a woman has come out rather than a man. And in that, into that kind of world, the Bible speaks male and female, image of God, male and female, image of God, heirs together, co-heirs co- with Christ, and so on, all the way through, beginning to end. Now, there are ways in which the, way, the things that men and women do in life, actually, much of it governed by biology, actually, by childbirth, in almost every culture we know of, have made the experience of living out what it is to be human very different from men and women. And that is in most societies until very recently meant that you have a lot more free time, if you like, to go and agency in the world if you're a male, because you're not carrying a child. And if, of course, if you're in a generation where you're dead at 40 and you spend a lot of time between the ages of 15 and 40 bearing children, you are, as a woman, much less likely to be able to do many of the things we assume free people can do. Much of that is a constraint of history, a constraint of, constraint of economics, and a constraint of biology. So I'm not denying that there are... Huge differences in the way that has worked out in history. But I think you've got to go back to the image of God, and then you have to go to the person of Jesus. You have to see Jesus and how much of his time he spent not only witnessing to women, but discipling and training women, liberating women from literal things like demons, as in, come out, I'm going to free you, and spending a lot of his time with them. And then, of course, sending women out as the first witnesses of the resurrection. And say, actually, the freedom to flourish, the freedom to be, the freedom to become, the freedom to represent the image of God, the freedom to tell the world Jesus is alive, and the freedom to be conformed into his image and share the inheritance of the new creation. All of those things are just as, gloriously just as open to women as they are to men. And we need to celebrate that truth and show the world that. And it's actually because Christians did a long time ago that many of the things we now take for granted about men and women are even there. And historical scholars will generally tell you that Christianity is largely responsible for the revolution in the role of women in the ancient Roman Empire and leads to many of the things we would now take for granted, which I'm very proud of. So, not that I was there. Thank you very much. Great question. Okay, we're done. It's half past 12. Have a great time at lunch, and it's been great having you.